0: Good morning. It's great to be back, and I know most of us are not back, but it's so great to see your faces this morning. Um, I got to be honest with you. Over the this uh, season of being at home, I've grown. I've grown used to the pre-recorded sermon. I've grown used. I got. You know, I was actually wearing shorts for most of those messages, but you didn't know that. Uh, I had to put dress shoes on today for the first time in months. So. Anyways, would you join me in a word of prayer before we get to the message? Father, we thank you for your word to us in which you revealed who you are, your character and your nature. Speak to us, Lord, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the past couple of months, my family as well as many families, we've spent a lot of time together. Uh, We've spent a lot of time together. I got some amens for that. We've watched movies together. We've played games together. We have eaten many, many meals together. And one of the things that has developed over the last few months is our youngest son, Ben, has been eager to volunteer to be the one who prays before we eat a meal. Like, really eager. It's like it's his exclusive job at this point to pray for the meal. And I don't know if that's a youngest kid thing. I don't know if it's because the youngest kid is cute, so their prayers are cute. But I, the house I grew up in, uh, I'm an older brother, my younger brother, that was like his job too. It was his exclusive job. Like He prayed, and he prayed the same prayer before a meal as he did at nighttime as we would gather as a family and pray. And his prayer was this. Thank you, Jesus, for the Fuki house. Thank you, Jesus, for the Fuki house. The word Fuki house emerged eventually as a meaningful, cherished word in the vocabulary of the sack household. Fuki house. Now you're wondering, what did that pastor just say? Fuki house, which my little brother was trying to say, food in the house. Thank you, Jesus, for the food in the house. Didn't matter if we were about to eat or if we're going to bed. He was thanking God for the food in the house. See, from a very young age, it doesn't take a whole lot to appreciate, oh, you know what, food's important. I mean, we, came out, we come out of the womb, and food is one of our highest, if not our highest priority. Food is something that, that we are born, we're craving satisfaction, and food does a really good job toward meeting that craving the problem is when we begin to look for satisfactions and things that we don't fully find satisfactory you see we look to bread or metaphorically speaking that bread can be other things financial security power and influence the attention from the opposite sex achievement the approval of peers or literally bread or an entire carton of ice cream. We think those things will satisfy us, and they leave us short. They they don't really bring satisfaction, but yet we keep coming back to it over and over again, hoping that this time it's going to really bring satisfaction. This time, it's going to deliver. And we find ourselves short of satisfaction. If you have your Bibles today, we're going to take a look at the most famous passage about bread in Scripture, John chapter 6. Now, I recognize it's been months since we've been in the series of John, so let me give you a little bit of a, some background, just a reminder. John writes this. He was a, a disciple of Jesus. Now he's a leader in the church. He writes this towards the end of his life, towards the end of the first century. The church has been in existence for decades. And he writes this to say, this is who Jesus is. And he gives us his purpose statement in John chapter 20 when he says that, that Jesus wants us to have life and to have life to its fullest, to have life abundantly now, the, the structure of John is, can, can be divided in two sections. There's the first half of the book, which really focuses on the ministry of Jesus, and the second half, which focuses on the leading up to and the cross, his work on the cross. We're in that first half in John chapter 6. But even John, that first half is divided up because you can see these smaller divisions. We're in a section where the reservation that we saw about Jesus early on in Scripture, in, in the book of John, now turns to opposition So we're going to see a little bit of that uh, before we see some outright confrontation. There is a pattern that we're dealing with here, the way John has constructed his account of Jesus' life. We saw it in the previous chapter in 5 where Jesus does a miracle, and then he reveals something about himself in light of that miracle. We see it again here in chapter 6. Last time we were together, three months ago, looking at this book, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 2 said that the the crowd followed him because of his miracles. And then at the very end of that account, verses 14 and 15, we see that the crowd identified Jesus correctly, but yet they missed him at the same time. They said, this is the Son of God by which we get what we desire. So they were right and they were wrong at the same time. So this comes on the heel of feeding 5,000. Read with me John chapter 6, starting in verse 16. That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. Now, let me just remind you where we came from. Jesus feeds 5,000. The crowd was excited about this miracle worker, and he could sense they wanted to make him king by force, so Jesus slips away because that's not what he came to do. He He came as king, but a different kind of king. So Jesus slips away, and the disciples are waiting for him in verse 16. But as darkness fell, Jesus still had not come back. So they got in their boats and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. I don't know exactly what the disciples are thinking. Well, he's not back. Let's just leave. I'd like to ask that question one day if I get to meet them in heaven. Soon a gale swept down upon them and the sea grew very rough. Then they rowed three and four miles. Then suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified, but he called out to them, don't be afraid, I am here. Then they were eager to let him in the boat and immediately they arrived at their destination. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the shore saw that the disciples had taken their only boat. Then they realized Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread, the feeding of the 5,000, and saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there. They got into the boats, and they went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked him, Rabbi, why did, how did you get here? When did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I feed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Let's take a look at this, uh, what we just read. The very first part of this, we see Jesus walking on water. It's a miracle that's recorded in other Gospels. Matthew and Mark records it. And it's a miracle that you've probably heard many sermons on. Sermons about Jesus calming the storm or or sermons about how the disciples were fearful and afraid. You've probably heard sermons that talked about getting out of the boat and walking on the water like Jesus. Or maybe you've heard a sermon about staying in the boat because Jesus said, Don't worry, I'm here. You don't have to get out of the boat, Peter. But none of that is John's focus. John doesn't even record dialogue between the disciples and Jesus, other than him saying, don't be afraid, I am here. He doesn't mention calming the storm. He just kind of has you just walk on water, meet them, hop in the boat, and get to the other side in a hurry. So what's John's purpose? Well, there's a number of things here. He's certainly revealing, for the disciples' sake, his authority. Jesus is revealing his authority to the disciples, because we know from other Gospels, even the disciples didn't understand the feeding. But John is also developing that comparison to Moses that we've seen in this book. We saw it in the prologue, we've seen, it in the, we've seen it in the previous chapter, in chapter five, we'll see it later in chapter six, that like Moses, Jesus does miracles of food and water and like Moses who brings deliverance, Jesus is a deliverer. But I don't want you to overlook this last reason, which I think is a very valid reason why John handles this text this way. See, the focus of this chapter is on the crowd's response to Jesus. This moment sets Jesus up to meet with the crowds. He walks across the water to get to the other side, quite literally, to set up the encounter with the disciples. So if someone says, why did Jesus walk on water? Your answer is to get to the other side. And then in verses 22 through 29, we actually read what happens with the crowd and Jesus. The crowd comes to Jesus, and they, 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 they couldn't find him, so they cross the other side. They, they ask him, when did you get here? We saw your disciples leave, and we know they took the boat. How did you get here? When did you get here? Now, Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, doesn't answer their question. Jesus does not answer the question they're asking because if he did, and I think if he did, he would just kind of further feed the fire of desire and their lust for what he can do as a miracle worker for them. He does not answer their question, but he challenges them. He says, listen, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous sign. The feeding of the 5,000 was a sign, and they didn't, they didn't catch what, they were, what the sign was supposed to point to. Therefore, it's no longer a sign for them. They wanted bread for their pleasure, not Christ as their treasure. They became fixated on their provision and not the one who provided, on the gift but not the giver. And that's the whole purpose of this message today from this passage. See, we are designed and we're built for satisfaction And while we go to our bread, we find that it never truly satisfies. But satisfaction is not found in bread for its pleasure, but Christ as your treasure. Satisfaction is not found in bread for its pleasure, but in Christ as your treasure. The Gospel of John was written to reveal Christ's glory so that we would treasure him. Jesus is the all supplying, all satisfying bread from heaven This is the beginning of what we call the the bread of life discourse. In a few verses, Jesus is going to say, I am the bread of life. Yet their focus is on the gifts, and our focus too becomes on the gifts of bread that that Jesus gives us, the things that we should enjoy. I'm not not saying we should not enjoy them, but we should should be reminded that we have a propensity to put a focus on. On the gift and not the giver. We have a propensity to put a focus on the miracles, not the miracle worker. We have a desire for bread, for our pleasure, and not Christ as our treasure. So enjoy the gifts that God has given, but don't look to them to bring the satisfaction that you crave. Enjoy the bread he gives, and then treasure the bread that he is. You were made with a hunger that could only be satisfied in Christ. Satisfaction is not found in bread for its pleasure, but in Christ as your treasure. As we keep reading in this passage, verse 27, Jesus begins to develop what it looks like to treasure him and why he is to be treasured. He tells the crowd not to be concerned for or work for things that are perishable. He is rebuking their materialistic way of living in the here and now and focusing on just the here and now. Like the woman at the well who says, give me this water so I'll never have to come back to this well. They're saying, give me this bread so we can find satisfaction. But the bread he's giving them that's going to bring satisfaction is himself. Notice he says, the bread is Perishable. Even bread that's multiplied by miracles is perishable bread. I mean, it's, it's a miraculous loaf of bread that he fed 5,000 people with, but it's still bread. It's still subject to becoming stale and moldy. Doesn't that kind of remind you of what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 6, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat and rust destroys, or where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy And thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there are the desires of your heart will also be. See, Jesus encourages them to spend their energy actually pursuing eternal life. Your translation might say the food, keeping with the metaphor, the food that endures to eternal life. As we read further, we're going to see that Jesus is indeed this food. The crowd responds to Jesus, don't don't spend all your energy on perishable food. They respond and, and, and really it says don't work for, they respond with a, an emphasis on the work part of Jesus' response to them. We want to perform the work that God requires. We want to do what we should do according to what God would ask of us. The crowd misunderstood Jesus. He didn't see what he was, what he was pointing to. They did not see what he was pointing to. He wanted them to pursue the right goal, eternal life, rather than the here and now. But somehow... They place their focus on the work, what God requires. And that's the question of all religions. What is, what is the deity or deities whom I'm trying to win favor from? What do they require of me? Every religion. That's why we throw people into volcanoes, right? we got to get the good, the good favor of we don't. don't be, we don't throw people. But, you know, what do I have to do to appease that deity? But what's funny is we do that same pagan approach To the God of heaven. It sounds pious to say, What does God require of me? But it's really arrogance if we think that we can come with what God requires. What God requires, we can't come with, and that's why He provided His Son, Jesus Christ, to do what we could not do. It sounds pious, but it's really arrogant. May we not forget the good news of the gospel of grace. In verse 29, as we keep reading, Jesus' response to there, what is the work I can do? His response is, the only work that God wants from you is to believe in the one that he sent. The only work that God wants from you is to believe in the one he sent. That work, believe there, in the original language, it's, it's pistuo, which means to think to be true, to have faith, to trust but there's an object of this faith and trust. What is that object? The one he has sent. This being sent is consistent with the theme that we see through the book of John. Jesus best reveals the Father because he is sent by the Father from heaven. God has sent his prophets in the Old Testament to represent him. But now Jesus is the best representation of the Father because he was sent by the Father. He has an intimacy with the Father that we read about in the previous chapter. See, faith in Jesus is what God requires, not works. And this is where, where Paul in the book of Romans writes Can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. We are to be made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. We want to talk about cherishing Christ rather than pursuing bread for its pleasure, having Christ as our treasure. It comes because of his work on the cross. It becomes, it comes from the message of grace. That's what makes him our bread. Satisfaction is found not in the bread, not in bread for its pleasure, but in Christ as your treasure. So what do we do? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that I know what it's like to treasure him. But the reality is life and its demands I have an appetite, I have a healthy appetite for my bread that's not the treasured bread of Christ. I have a healthy appetite. I'm gonna say check your relationship with Jesus. Check yourself. You see, we become Christians because God does a work in our heart through the gospel of the good news of Jesus and yet somehow, some way, The flame that burns bright in our hearts gives way. What was once a personal relationship with Jesus can easily become a transactional relationship of entitlement. You see, if I do what is right, if I follow his commands, if I am sexually pure, if I give to the church, if I volunteer my time, then God has to bless me. And when he doesn't, I find myself disappointed that he didn't keep up his end of the deal. I deserve a better job. I deserve a better marriage. I deserve the good life, at least a comfortable life. What happens is Jesus no longer becomes the bread that we treasure. He's simply the bread maker. We think we've paid the price to purchase bread from him, and now he's obligated to provide it when he wants us to really find our bread in him. We have conscripted Jesus into the service of our desires. Check your relationship with Jesus. It's not a one-time fix. It's something we continually do and fight for. What is your bread today that's screaming out louder than the bread that is Christ-treasured? Secondly, I would say cherish the grace of God. The truth is we will get this wrong. We will leave this place. You will not walk out of this message and say, Wow, that was good. I'm never not going to cherish Christ again. Thanks for that, Jerome. You've solved my idolatrous, adulterous heart. We're going to get this wrong. We will place our pleasure in bread ahead of treasuring Christ. I'm not saying this because I'm banging anyone over the head or I'm shaming you because I'm in there with you. I'm saying this because I want to grow with this area. I want to do it better tomorrow than, I do, than I'm doing today. I want to do it better today than I did yesterday. But when I cherish grace, it actually fuels Christ as the treasure of my heart. We have to fight to keep Christ on the throne of our hearts. And the way we do it is by remembering that we have received what we don't deserve. And that we have not received what we do deserve because of what Christ has done. Isn't that great news that our inability to keep Christ first is not a deal breaker for God? That's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross. There's grace for that too. See, when we, when we are grace aware, when we are grace aware, when we're reminded of the grace that we've received, I think it's easy for Jesus to become the undisputed treasure of our hearts. The problem is we are grace amnesiacs. Who start off with grace and then begin to think that we've deserved or earned this thing? Cherish the grace of God. Live the gospel daily because God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. He is the bread of life. Now, if you're not a Christian today and you're joining us online, I'm gonna assume if you're part of this group, you're, anyways, that's an assumption. My question to you would be, if you're burnt out on religion, if you've looked at this thing as a transactional entitlement, I do my part, God does his part. What Jesus is offering is a relationship with him. What he wants from you is to believe in the one he sent. The one who took our place by living a life we could not live and dying a death that we deserve. And all we need to do is believe there is a crossing the line of faith that happens in our heart. You could repeat after me prayer, but it doesn't matter unless you cross that line of faith in your heart first. What will you do with this message of Jesus? And Jesus did not come into this world to use his power to satisfy our existing appetites. He came to transform our appetites. May we be transformed. May we find satisfaction in him. The band's gonna come at this time. And we're gonna sing the song. But let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the one who we find true satisfaction in. Unlike the crowd, Make us people who will look and treasure Christ. That will look at Christ as the treasure of our heart, not the provider of what we truly desire. God, our heart is prone to wander. Our heart is indeed selfish and lustful for things of this earth and this world. And we find, even though we know they leave us unsatisfied, we go back again and again. Help us to fight to keep Christ as the bread that we cherish and treasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.